Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Being in a band is hard. Keeping a band together is harder still. And if a band can keep it together for longer than, I don't know, a decade, they should probably get some kind of medal. Let's give props to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, still going since their establishment in 1983. Metallica has been with us since 1981. Both New Order and Depeche Mode go back to 1980. The current lineup of U2 has been the same since that day in March 1978 when they changed their name from The Hype. And as they were doing their thing in Dublin, The Cure was coming together in England. So pretty good. Here are a few more longevity champions. Blondie formed 1974. Kiss. 1973, The Eagles, 1971, The Who, 1964, The Rolling Stones, 1962, and The Beach Boys, 1961. Now, let's look at just Canada. Sloan has been with us since at least 1991. The Tragically Hip, 1985. Loverboy, 1979. April Wine, 1969. Rush lasted a full 50 years before they broke up. They were formed in 1968. And we still have a version of the Guess Who out there, maintaining a streak that started in 1965. At this point, I should also point out that the Nanaimo Concert Band in Nanaimo, B.C. has been a going concern since 1873. Not with the original members, of course, but there's been some lineup changes. 1873. Another band that needs to be added to this list is 5440. They were established in 1980 and are still going. There have been some changes in personnel, but the core of the band is still intact, still touring, still recording, still on the radio. They have outlasted the original wave of punk and new wave. They made it through the era of 80s hair metal. They made it through grunge, the resurrection of indie rock in the 2000s, the rise of the internet, the demise of the music video channels, and, well, I think you get the idea. So this is probably as good a time as any to sit down with the band to let them talk it out, to let them tell us about their decades in the Canadian music business. This is 5440 In Their Own Words, Part 1. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Fifty four forty with West Coast bands, something that they wrote during COVID and will be released later in 2023. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I thought this was time to pay some respect to a band that's been part of the Canadian musical landscape since 1980. But rather than me write up a long script detailing their accomplishments, I was able to talk to the band backstage at the Horseshoe in Toronto as they were getting ready for a string of shows before Christmas 2022. The goal, as with all these In Their Own Words episodes, is to get the band to tell their own story in their own words. And that's exactly what we did starting at the very beginning. So Vancouver in the middle 70s was an interesting sort of place. It was kind of cut off from the rest of the world because of the mountains. And there was more of a a north-south thing going rather than an east-west thing. And as a result, there was this scene that was uh, sort of a punk rock scene, sort of uh, an outsider music scene. And and would it be safe to say that this is what you were part of before 5440 came together? Yes, 
that would be totally fair to uh, to say. Um, uh, late seventies, I would say. I for us, go, yeah, for us, yeah, yeah. Brad and I and Randy, we took a little fear and loathing car trip down the coast. Followed the young Canadians. This would be nineteen eighty. This would be Art, Ber- Art Bergman's band. Yeah, um, but yeah, a lot of those bands, DOA, young Canadians, would travel Seattle, Portland, San Francisco. And then when we formed a band, that's exactly what we did too. You're, you're exactly right. We didn't hit Toronto till five years after. Was there a band before 5440? Uh, not really. There were, you know, we had a couple of incarnations, covers, new wave covers, things like that. I was in a little thing with my brother called, called the Loud Rangers. Yeah. It's- right. Well, this is really foggy, Alan. We're gonna we're gonna no, try to help you out. I think the more we talk about it, the more the memories will yeah, come yeah. back. So and the caffeine's coming, so we're gonna be fine. Yeah. Um played it in my garage, my parents' garage. Yeah, so yeah, like we so, were called the news for about a week. Yeah, the news. Yeah, we did so we did and we did one little show for friends. We No Huey Lewis. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was before him, actually. Here we go. This is it's all gonna kick in here right now. Let's just start from even more of the beginning. So I, uh, as a kid, moved around a lot. Um, my dad got transferred and stuff like that and uh, lived all over the U.S. Neil did the same thing across Canada. His dad worked for CMHC and he got transferred all over the place. And so Neil has a breadth of the whole country. And uh, so we both met in high school in, in uh, Vancouver in, in the, <clears throat> the middle of uh, the year, early 1977, January, when he came from Edmonton to to Tawasson, right? And so, and uh, so looking at Neil, I went, this guy is weird. You know, he dresses weird. He doesn't care. He's my kind of guy. You know, I'm going to find out more about him. And then we started talking about music. We had a couple classes together and same thing in grade 12. Started going to shows together. Uh, Neil ends up going to uh, Boston for, to music school for a semester or two. I go to a, a community college, very much, uh, involved in the Vancouver punk rock scene, going to every show I possibly can, going down to Quintessence Records and buying the singles as they come out, starting going down to Seattle to see bands, to to buy records, all that kind of thing. And uh, then, uh, you know, I said, come on back and we'll start a band. Stuff's really happening here. Vancouver is amazing. I feel like right now, f- super fortunate to have been a part of that, to see these bands and to be part of that scene. I, I actually have the letter that he wrote me. Just in those <laughs> days, you, you wrote letters. <laughs> Too expensive to phone. So it's, he's like, it's really happening here. I'm back. Yeah. And so, and then, yeah, after high school, we like Neil, Neil said, we did that fear and loathing tour of, of uh, California. We went to the Whiskey A Go-Go, saw bands. We uh, it was great. It was fun. And uh, we got all excited and said, let's let's start this band. And we did that kind of in the fall of 1980. Um, I, I lived out on, my father started a business, which was like a metal recycling uh, slash foundry kind of thing. So we were, you know, melting non-ferrous metals. And I lived on the plant site and kind of tried to supervise every single shift. It was a very, you know, it was a tough thing for everybody, but we made it through anyway. And, uh, but it had had this old house and I lived there and, uh, Neil came over and we started playing music. I learned songs that he had written. We wrote some stuff together and, uh, got a drummer involved and that's how the whole thing started. Your first gig is not on a great night. 
December 8th, 1980. And you play in, in Vancouver. Um, did you know at the time when you took the stage that John Lennon had been killed that day? We, we knew that he'd been shot and we were, we were in shock. And I think maybe just before we went on or it was confirmed, driving there was all over the radio. I mean, you must remember that. Yes. Right? It was like that John Lennon's been shot. It's just like, it was a shocker. You know, when you're young, you know, when we were young, we were as 54, 40, like a lot of young bands and that attitude, like the clash or whatever, we thought we had the, uh, the juice to change the world. We were part of it. And then when you take the stage and it's your first gig and John Lennon's been shot, it's, it's like one of those, you know, all quiet on the Western front type moments where it's like, you know, Johnny's just been shot. We got to go over those trenches and fight this battle now. It was really moving. Uh, very powerful. I think we played about four songs or something like that, but they're all original, you know, and it was a Monday night uh, where they call it open mic. So we were the only ones there, I think, other than the regular cover band. So it just felt meaningful, I guess, if that, if that makes any sense, that there's a connection there. So yeah, powerful. All right. So describe your sound and attitude at the time. What were you? Serious, idealistic, naive. Those are the three words that come to mind. Yeah. I mean, I, you, you know, we took irreverence seriously. We did everything. I mean, we, at the time, I, I just remember practicing, you know, four, five, sometimes six nights a week. And, uh, you know, trying to concern ourselves with getting uh, the next thing. You know, we, we would work up to like a show uh, where we'd be, you know, on a bill. We were getting 50 bucks to play with uh, rock and roll bitches and ant head and scissors in like February of 1981 at what became Richards on Richards, the laundromat. And we're the first band on the bill. We're so excited. There's 70 people in the audience or whatever it is. And then that would end and we'd be like, uh, well, what do we do now? Right. We get like an existential moment. It's like, well, this, there's no reason to go on anymore unless, uh, you know, because there's nothing to do. So Neil and I came up with quite early. It's like, you gotta have something to do after that. So you're not questioning whether you're going to be in the band all the time. Right. So we did. I mean, so it, it, even if we had nothing on the books, we'd say, okay, we're going to go back and we're going to write some more songs. As Neil would call it woodshedding. So we'd always have a project after the one that was the immediate one. And that allowed us to go on. And then eventually we turned that into, we decided we'd, after practice, we'd go up to this little pizza joint up the street and uh, have pizza and sit around and talk, you know, and uh, kind of like a, our version of coffee, coffee warriors kind of thing. And we said, let's just decide right now we're going to make 10 records. And then you don't have to think about, you know, what you're going to do next. So we did that. And uh, it turns out we actually end up making more than 10 records. First recordings were done where? Uh bedrock no well yes i guess some bedrock we did that 16 track thing in north vancouver too for the selection yeah for that we did uh, where right. was the uh, things are still called? things are still coming ashore the same place yeah same place I remember in, that yeah what was the name of that place don't know yeah it was in north vancouver it was a 16 track yeah two inch tape yeah. studio and we did the ep selection there and that's where we uh and then we did the songs before the uh, the Moda Moo on the Moda Moo label. Things are still coming ashore. 
there. There were a lot of indie labels at the time in Vancouver. Yeah, so Moda Moose stood for modern dance music. And that was one of the chiefs of that was Alan Moy, who's still our manager today. But it was a sort of a, you know, a communist though cooperative of bands, self-run record label. And uh, there's uh, Junk, uh, uh, Junko uh, like Run. Junko Run. Yeah. Tin Twist, Animal Slaves. Yeah. Popular uh, Front. Popular Front. And then us. And we would meet in, in Annie's house, which was a little house in, on Columbia Street. Right. Yeah. An old heritage house. We would whatever every week or twice a week and have these meetings as if we were revolutionaries, you know. And okay, you're going to handle mailing out these cassettes and you're going to handle writing these letters to the colleges and you're going to, you know, let's organize another hall gig. And in those days you could get a, you could actually get a hall gig and people would actually show up, uh, which was very cool. So it, it really seemed to be, you were, we were part of a scene, part of something in Vancouver that was very underground. You know, that word alternative didn't exist back then. And we weren't really punks either. So we were more of the arty underground scene. Here are some of the earliest 5440 available. It's from a 1982 album entitled Selection, which was out of print for years. This is called Yank. So that EP evolves into your first album, which is also an indie thing, Set the Fire. What was the leap in style or attitude or between those two releases? Change of personnel. We were a three-piece before that with Ian Franey on drums. And then we had this kind of loopy kind of sound, lots of instrumental sections and Neil with kind of a spaced out guitar thing. And then the vocals come in. Um, that's, that's selection, I would say, uh, with kind of a weird groove thing. And then, uh, so Ian wanted to leave uh, and we tried to talk him out of it, but he said, no, I want to go and, and that's fine. And then, so we got in uh, Daryl Newdorf, who we knew because he played in a band called Empty Set in Kelowna and he's friends with, you know, all the guys that became the Grapes of Wrath and that kind of thing. Uh, and then Phil Comparelli, who actually played trumpet on a show that we did where Neil did the horn arrangements. We had a, uh, a saxophone and a trumpet player. And Phil was that guy. So we said, well, Neil always wanted to be a four piece. And I said, well, why don't we just see if we can pick Daryl off <laughs> uh, from empty set and then see if we can get Phil to join us. Cause he's a musical guy and we knew that he could make it work. So that's, that's probably the first thing. There's more things that happen, but that's, you get one guy gone and two guys in your sound's going to change. Yeah. Students of the band will know the origin of the name, but why don't you explain it? And why would you take an American slogan and turn it into the name of a Canadian band? You know, going back to, you know, what I said earlier about Neil and I, you know, uh, moving around, I, I grew up mostly in the United States. Uh, Neil grew up in Canada. Um, we were living in um, Tawasson, which literally is on the U.S. border. You know, it's, uh, the, the border was, you know, a mile from my house. Um, so we're border conscious. We, uh, met in social studies and later we took history together uh, and had a great history teacher. Um, uh, and, uh, so this is all in my mind when we're coming up with names and I actually did a, like a stream of consciousness thing. I had all this paper and I came up with all these names. Um, 
Uh, we, I, we rehearsed in a place in Surrey called Bridgeview. So I thought Bridgeview dogs, that's good. Cause I had a big dog and, and I thought, uh, Safeway rebels was another one. I went, Oh, you know, kind of, you know, like it's kind of got the little irony thing there. And then I went 5440 and I went, yeah, I could do that. Oh, that'll work. You know, work for a year or two. And so, uh, and that came from American history came from a, 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 a slogan of an American presidential candidate, James Polk, um, who in the 1840s uh, believed in this concept of manifest destiny, which is the Americans going to take over the whole continent. And he's talking specifically about the Oregon territories, which is where we lived in British Columbia was be part of the Oregon territories. Uh, the British had all of Washington state at that time, right down to the mouth of the Columbia river Fort Astoria. You guys will remember that. And uh, so uh the board of things present, my experience in the U.S., Neil's in Canada, being in Canada, living on the border, history class, and then something we, I didn't want to be like, uh, you know, there's the Boomtown Rats, not there's anything wrong with the Boomtown Rats, but all these bands were like the adjective nouns and uh, didn't, didn't want to do that. So we chose something which was big and yet small at the same time. After the Selection EP, there was a full indie record called Set the Fire in 1984, and it was shortly after that that a major record label came calling, but only after 5440 had recorded another indie record. The 1986 self-titled album, the so-called Green Album, was picked up by Reprise and re-released, and this is where the hits began. So the, um, the Green Album comes out, you're signed to a major label, so Reprise, we'll call it your breakthrough, obviously. Because it's you know with fifty with with Baby Ran and with um, uh, I go blind on it. I remember hearing Baby Ran for the first time and thinking, "Holy crap, these guys make an awful lot of noise." Because it was such a real in-your-face kind of record that was released in the middle '80s after techno pop had come and gone, and while pop music was really on the ascendant. So the wall of guitars that came with that song was just it, it really was different and uh to my ears it really shook up canadian music let's talk about where the song came from oh gosh that's a baseline i think right yeah it's, yeah the be summer late spring early summer of no well, i don't know it'd be spring of 85 i would guess and uh daryl is in the band phil's in the band and yeah, I play that little, the bass line, the, the bass line. The way we wrote songs, one of the ways we wrote songs is I would get a little bass line ahead of work or something, and I would just keep on playing it until people joined me, right? I was just, it was obnoxious, really, a way to write songs. And then, so Neil or, would have to. Yeah, or we you'd keep the same groove, and I would find different melodies or chord progressions that could go over yeah. the same bass line. And, and, and we would record everything. We had a, I had a, a, a called a ghetto blaster, I guess you would call it and uh yeah we had two great condenser mics and i get like you know it, 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 stereo it sounded really good like it's and so we actually used that as a kind of a writing tool so yeah and then yeah quite often once the band gets going uh you know we had a little practice pa neil would start to sing and it would be kind of stream of consciousness kind of thing and come in with melodies and little words little words ideas and then he'd go home and you know write a few things down and come back with some more and and away we'd go that's kind of the way we the songs together. Fifty-four 
5440 and Baby Ran from the Green Album in 1986. Big, big rock hit in Canada. But there was another song on the record that would do even better, but not in a way anyone expected. That story is coming up, along with more from the band, as they go through their career, which is now in its fifth decade. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is the first part of an episode where 5440 tells their story in their own words. Matt Johnson is now the drummer, replacing the original guy, Daryl Newdorf, who went on to work with Sarah McLaughlin. So let's continue. Well, I, I was a fan, so from Selection set the fire to the green record as a fan the progression of the songwriting was so obvious and so i mean selection was a groovy you know vibey thing set the fire you could see you know the hints of actual songwriting and craft and then the green record was like wow okay the craft is is you know it's pretty solid and the band um even though they were part of the scene, they were never really, you were always kind of on the outside of Brad the- had a saying that if you live by a scene, you die by it. So we always made sure we had one foot out of it. Yeah. And that was very clear to a fan before I joined the band. Um, it was like, yeah, these they don't fit in, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I think there were probably some people in the scene who were like, uh, you know, they're, they're not punk rock enough. Or the, but- uh, as a fan, and you see that song, the progression in the songs and the writing. You're it's like, funny because okay. I always think of, uh, in one of our favorite bands was Joy Division and then they morphed into New Order. And I can't remember which member said it. I think it might have been Peter Hook or whatever. You know, when they started out, we thought we were writing pop hits. We just didn't know how to do it, but we thought what we were writing were pop hits. And then obviously, eventually they did write them that's that's what we kind of did too we thought we thought they were the catchiest things out there right? <laughs> <laughs> not some weird shit that only a few people would like <laughs> and then eh, and then once in a while there was a pop hit that came out so there you go the sound of the band kind of changed a little bit too so the green record uh that's the last record that daryl played on and he is on every single song uh except for take, take my, my hand. hand so matt is the drummer on take my hand so Matt joins the band in September of 85. We have a tour of California we're preparing for. We rehearse every night. Matt's listening to the songs on his cassette player all the time. Go down there and do that tour. And uh, that's that was the tour that where we got signed to, to Warner Brothers. We, and we talked with every label, and they were probably the... There's other labels that we could assign to. It was great. Was this Warner Brothers Canada or Warner Brothers USA? Warner Brothers USA. Hey, we, in Canada, we couldn't get a sniff. We still have the rejection letter from Bob <laughs> Roper. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. So, the, the uh, then, you know, we also made a conscious effort with the Green Record and Beyond that we wanted to be more rock <laughs> and less whatever we were before. So, we wanted to, we actually had a direction which Matt helped facilitate because he was, you know, the best rock drummer in BC. 
So, so that was a no brainer. The, the, the next album is another leap in, I don't know, songwriting maturity and, and, and confidence. Um, so the show me album comes out in 87 and that's just when that's at the very beginning what we now call the can rock renaissance so the on the west coast there's you guys over this part of the world there's uh tragically hip and there's this sense looking back there was this sense that canadian music after being in the wilderness for years is starting to come into its own did you feel that do you remember that um well, like we knew the hip guys, we knew you know there was a, there was definitely a, a national scene driven a lot by uh, university frosh weeks, you know, that would pay the bills. Uh, we were still very much uh, entrenched in Los Angeles and trying to still make things work out of that. Um, and then we would come up here, and you know, we would sort of tour crisscross the country, still trying to do that. Um, you know, what other bands were coming out? The hip kind of were a little bit, I guess they came out about then, right? 87. Yeah. 80, yeah. So they're a little bit, little bit later than, than us. So I remember meeting them at that in the Brandon or something. Winnipeg. Winnipeg at a gas station. They were going West. We were going East. <laughs> Bunch of long hairs pile out of each van. It's like, Hey, where are you guys? Oh yeah. Yeah. We heard something about, you know, this is not, there's no internet. There's, you can't just sort of dial them up or, you know, you're not hearing about it. Right. It's, you can't make a phone call even. So it's like, it's a band in a van. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And we have a couple of, a uh, couple of Canadian radio hits on there. One day in your life was a big hit for you. Yeah. And, still is. And I guess, what was the other one? Was it walk in line? Uh, that was, a, that was a, a single. It didn't become, you know, the other one that, that we still play would be one gun. One gun. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I remember being on the radio back then, and those two songs were always being played. Um, and were we playing? I guess we were. That was the we started to play music from compact discs. And that's right. Yeah. So this is eighty. Was that eighty nine? Eighty eight? Yeah, yeah. Somewhere around there, we're starting to play music on compact discs. And uh, again, there's this big sound coming from your disc because, you know, even as a four piece, you seem to make a tremendous amount of noise, even with a song like, you know, One Gun or One Day in Your Life, uh, which is a fairly simple arrangement, yet it's, it feels very, very big. Yeah, that was actually produced by uh, Dave Jordan down in Los Angeles, who mixed the green record for us. Be, to be honest, it wasn't my favorite production. Really? Why? Yeah. Yeah, because it was overproduced, I thought. And I actually remember having a real struggle with that record, with the producer, with the record label who, and I lost that argument. I wanted to go back to the baby, to the green record sound. And they wanted to do this more big kind of U2 was taking off and they wanted us to jump into that forum. I'm, I've almost reconciled it now, all these years later, but still my least favorite record but that was the way things were being done in the in the late 80s i get that but we you know that was our first sort of compromise right. is the, that i felt we we made against our uh, instinct you know but we did have a couple hits so in fact it was so funny cuz uh we were doing one day in your life and dave jordan you know he said it needs a bridge it needs a bridge and i remember the and our guy came and he said he wrote a bridge, which was just like, 
you know. No. <laughs> yes. So immediately I sat down with Phil and we came up with the bridge, you know, go back. There's nothing you can do. He's like, great. Okay. That'll be the bridge. And, uh, and we, we were in Toronto playing at the diamond and he flew up, Dave Jordan flew up from Los Angeles with the tape and he cut the tape and had that space, you know, with the, with, with he flew in some beat or something, some Matt's beat. And we just overlaid the bridge in the middle of the song. And so it could become the single that needed a bridge because we were a band that didn't believe in bridges. We didn't even know what they were, to be quite honest. And, uh, and also needs a bridge. What, what's that? You know, what's a bridge? Of course, nowadays we do nothing but bridges and every, all the big hits don't have them. <laughs> The, the second album was recorded in Los Angeles, right. w- which is the way things were done back then because money in the music industry flowed like water. Yep. And, you know, here's a quarter million dollars, blow your brains out. Oh, by the way, we're getting that money back on the other end. Yeah. Um, but again, that's the way it was done back then. You know, yeah. record labels were banks. The, yeah. It was the golden age. It was for quite a while, actually, through the 90s. Um, did, did the same thing happen for Fight for Love? So fight for love. Um, there was, there was. How can I put this? Brad probably can put it in a different way. But there was, you could tell that there was a, uh, a divorce coming. There was a sense with Warner Brothers that they weren't, because the green, re- you know, the green record didn't take a, uh, didn't do well really because the Paola scam, scandal happened. And they shut everything down. So we got no promotion. Not that I'm making excuses, but that is what happened. Uh, Baby Ran got a little MTV, but there was nobody pushing it because everybody was afraid. Uh, the uh, Show Me came out and, uh, you know, wasn't U2, wasn't 5440. What is it? That's the way I felt. So I said, I want to go back to Vancouver with Dave Ogilvie and Glenn Reilly, who was our live sound guy, and do a record the way we want to do a record. And that became Fight for Love. And that record contained one of my favorite songs in Baby Have Some Faith. And, uh, God, there's a, a, we're a bunch of singles from this record. Um, that I remember playing uh, here in my house, we played it as a single or at least an album track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that was a single. We played uh, Miss You, mm-hmm. played, I think we played Over My Head. Yeah. Back then. Yeah. So that was a, 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 you may have lost your American deal, but you retrenched in Canada and things started to, to really catch fire here, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that record did come out. That was the, that was the last record. We had a three record deal with Warner Brothers. So that was the third record, but because there was a divorce in the, in the air, you know, I, you know, and, the, and Brad, we just, we just insisted, let's do it our way, whatever. And uh, they did give us a little tour support as a goodbye, which was nice. Uh, so we could promote it a little bit. Let's, let's talk about that term tour support, because yeah. it's something that we don't really see these days anymore. What is tour support? We really didn't get much of it ever, but uh, we did a little, I think it was a few grand on that one. Right. So that was just to cover your costs on the road. Yeah. So, yeah. And that was, we did that. That was our first 
uh, was it on our first uh, tour in a bus? And we did the Bodines to the Midwest and then down the West Coast and then finished in the whiskey. And then we kind of knew that the deal was over kind of at the end of the whiskey show. Mm-hmm. And the deal was, are they going to continue with the tour support? And we continue. And so they, they actually came up with a bit more money. It's kind of like a kiss goodbye, as we called it. And we deadheaded across to Richmond, Virginia and picked up the Bob Mould tour and did like six or seven shows with Bob Mould. Wait, you went from L.A. to Richmond? Richmond, Virginia, yeah. In a tour bus with no dates in between. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, that was, yeah. So that's 89, I guess it was. Fall of 89. Yeah. Back with more from 5440 and their story in their own words in just a sec. This is part one of a two-parter featuring the current members of 5440 telling the band's history in their own words. All right. We made it through the 1980s and we're about to see something pretty spectacular happen to Canadian music in the 1990s. 5440's first contribution to the can rock of the 90s was an album entitled Dear Dear. It was recorded at Tom Petty's studio in California and was the first album not to get an American release. But things worked out just fine at home. How well did this album end up doing? It went platinum in Canada. We did, uh, yeah, so we went, got the gold record when we opened up for Tom Cochran at the CNE Remember that? That was the, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, Life is a Highway Tour. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and then it went platinum, you know, shorter after that. So it did really we well. We released that record and, and we got that at the height of Tom Cochran's Life is a Highway thing and Phenom. And uh, <clears throat> that tour put us in front of an audience that we'd really never been exposed to before. And to this day, there's fans who are like, I was a fan as soon as I saw you guys at that Tom Cochran show, you know, I think we did 10 shows across the country. That's about right. And uh, that was, that really helped propel that record as well. um, Putting us in front of all those people. And uh, yeah. And I think it, it bared out in in record sales. Dear, dear did uh, quite well for us. It's actually the beginning of your, your imperial phase where a lot of things really go very, very right for a, a, a good chunk of the 90s. Yeah. Uh, you know, the next album is is Smile and Buddha Cabaret uh, with, again, more hits on it, like, uh, you know, a radio love song. I just love being able to introduce and back sell Assaholic on, on the radio, which was a lot of fun. Ocean <laughs> Pearl was another uh, single from that. Um, so you're, you were... You know, where, where are we? 93, 94. Uh, things are going pretty well. And you're gaining more and more contemporaries. Matt Good, uh, The Tea Party, uh, I Mother Earth. Uh, who else around uh, that time? Lots of bands. Moist. Uh, sure. uh, yeah. uh, Spirit of the West was always around. Tragically Hip. Tragic, obviously the hip, yeah. So there's when, you know, I, I mark sort of the 90s is when the Canadian rock scene was healthy, wealthy, and wise. Big shiny tunes would sell a million <laughs> big copies. Big shiny tunes, yeah, exactly. I don't think we were ever on one of those. You were never on a big shiny tunes? No. Well, there's a lot of nevers with us. Never a Juno, <laughs> never a big shiny tunes. And we're proud to say that. <laughs> Uh, 
Another in a long line of Canadian hits from 5440, that's Ocean Pearl, from their 1994 album Smilin' Buddha Cabaret, which, in case you did not know, was named after a live music venue in Vancouver. Ocean Pearl was one of four singles from the album. The 90s were a fantastic time for Canadian music. It was a decade that showed that it was possible for a Canadian band to have a very solid domestic career. 5440 was part of a cohort that included Matt Good, The Tea Party, The Hip, I Mother Earth, Bare Naked Ladies, Sloan, Blue Rodeo, Odds, Grapes of Wrath, Cowboy Junkies, Artity Peace, Treble Charger, The Watchmen, Crash Test Dummies, Doughboys, Rusty, Pure, and a ton of others. On the second half of 5440, in their own words, we'll follow the band's career from the mid-90s forward. Meanwhile, please avail yourself to all the podcasts this radio program has generated over the years. There are hundreds of them available, all for free, on any podcast platform that you use. Just download and go. I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. We can meet up in any of those places. And don't forget my website, which is updated every day and comes with a free daily newsletter. That's ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Email to alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.